are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are discussing the misuse of butalbital and promethazine, two common medications. In this episode, we will discuss the history of butalbital and promethazine, regulations surrounding these medications, patient profiles and personality types that you will commonly see misusing these medications, withdrawal symptoms, and withdrawal management considerations. In this episode, we will also reference a case report from the Journal of Psychiatry from November 2021 called A Case of Severe Fear Asset Withdrawal Presenting During Admission to an Inpatient Psychiatric Unit from Augustine Rodolfo. All right, so let's get to it. Let's talk about butalbital first. So about butalbital and the main component in the branded furanol and furacet. And this was introduced back in the 1970s, and it was initially approved for tension headaches, but it has been widely used off-label for abortive treatment of migraine headaches. It's butalbital is a short-acting barbiturate. It does have potential for psychological and physiological tolerance and dependence. And that's what we're going to talk the most about tonight. So who's at risk of misuse and dependence? So actually kind of hard to find a lot of data on this. There was not, there was not a lot that on NIDA or SAMHSA's website, but the information says up to 12% of the general population are reported to, and this is from 2021, have reported to suffer from migraine headaches. And this is just from a U.S. survey. And then of those that suffer from migraine headaches, about about 13.5% have used a butalbital combination in the past year. And of those frequency of use, we're saying they were using about 15 days per month. That I found really interesting. And this is for our non-US listeners who've really kind of got with the program recognizing the risks and limited utility of this medication. So as over the past several decades, we've had increased reports of overuse, withdrawal syndromes, and just a lot of difficulty with this drug. As such, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Australia, and multiple other countries have removed butalbital and those combinations from their markets because of those safety concerns. Why this hasn't really come up here? And then it gets even more murky. It is not listed by the on the federal level as a controlled substance. And this kind of becomes because this is because it's in a combination, it kind of got through because it was marketed as a combination product. Primarily, they looked at the Tylenol combination because we have the combination with aspirin, we have the combination with Tylenol. 
And they, this was the original labeling, like if you could believe it. It was like, well, because it has a Tylenol in it, then that will limit the overuse of the medication. We know that is not to be true. And the data later has supported that. So it has been strongly encouraged, but it's been left on a state to state level to regulate it. So there are many states that it is a schedule three controlled substance, but there it is still not regulated in every state. So that is something that you need to be aware of. So it may not always be something that is showing up on your prescription monitoring data. We absolutely support that this needs to be controlled. And we maybe actually need to look to our counterparts in our other countries and consider the utility of this medication with some of the risks associated with it. So interesting thing about the population. So again, obviously, those who are using it frequently. So when we talk about the misuse and those who become dependent, I I really found this interesting about there was a study, and this was by Friedman and Deserio. They demonstrated that it had more benefit on those that reported about psychological distress and anxiety symptoms rather than the actual relief of the headaches themselves. And I think that's really key when you're looking at the personality types and who would be at risk. And then there was another study that talked about those who ended up developing misuse disorders are those with particularly we know always with the history of substance use disorders, but those suffering from access one and access to psychiatric diagnosis. And so those with a, what we now would describe as emotional dysregulation. And then we also look at those kind of those emotionally, you know, borderline dependent personality disorders, high risk of becoming a dependent and having misuse disorders with this medication. So you, we need to be very careful uh, about who who is even given prescriptions for these. They'd be very high risk. And I, I really found that piece fascinating because when I look back about patients that I've encountered who were on this medication daily or who had a misuse disorder, I could almost say 100% of them would meet that criteria of having that emotional dysregulation. And they would have met that before being, not just after being on the medication. So it wasn't that it was caused by the medication that they would have met that criteria before. So I, I think that is really interesting and an important thing to screen for. So what is the mechanism of action? So that might backing up a little bit of why is this such an issue? So if we know that but how do barbiturates work? They function by binding to GABA. So it's a GABA-A receptor subtype in the CNS, but also have an additional ability to depress the action of glutamate, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter. But we know what else like benzodiazepines that also bind to GABA-A receptor, but they do it at a different site than um, benzodiazepines. So reason why this is such a big deal is because of this different binding site, 
barbiturates actually carry an even higher risk for respiratory depression than benzodiazepines have. So this is an even higher risk drug. And how often I see this frequently, Paula, you have patients who are on barbiturates and benzodiazepines. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. that that's really interesting. That's a good and a good uh, kind of pathophysiology behind that. Yeah. And so it's it and it's important because and we'll get this to this, but we are not using typically because of that glutamate also and because of this different binding site. You would think then, okay, do we just use benzodiazepines for their withdrawal management? That's actually does not work well. So withdrawal syndrome is very similar to withdrawal from ethanol. This looks like your typical hypersympathetic, hyperkinetic withdrawals where you have that delirium because it's that removal from the GABAergic inhibitory tone within the CNS. So similar similar picture. It's hypertension, tachycardia, diaphoresis, tremors, hypothermia, and you can observe seizures as well. It yeah, usually, in fact, can I just say that I had two yeah. patients that I can think of really clearly who had, you know, developed a use disorder to butalbital, both of them presented with seizure as their first, it's kind of their main, yeah. um, yeah, sign of withdrawal and and seizure out of the blue. So they didn't really have many other withdrawal symptoms until they seized. And then they seized, were brought in, and then they developed like a full-blown withdrawal syndrome because seizure risk is incredibly high in withdrawal from these drugs. Yeah, that's and that is that can be pretty common. And that and that onset can be within in the literature, it says anywhere within within 16 hours of last use and then up to the five days. Most symptoms will gradually resolve over the next two weeks from their last ingestion. And it's and, it, and you definitely will see a dose dependence. But I mean, we see patients all the time coming in with daily use. And then sometimes they again, they escalate to these really high doses and then run out of meds or access. And then you see that, like you said, presents with just this seizure. Okay, so withdrawal management. So the most of the, there were several case reports and the the treatment of choice is actually phenobarbital. And I know you've used this several times, Paula. So tell us a little, what, how have you treated patients when you've encountered this like butalbital withdrawal? Yeah, the butalbital patients, patients who are using butalbital, who required medically managed withdrawal, we used phenobarbital in an inpatient setting. And um, I would be cautious using it in an outpatient setting unless you have experience using it. I'd refer them to an addiction medicine or addiction psychiatry specialist. But it's a great medication to manage butalbital withdrawal because it's a barbiturate as well, but it's much longer acting than butalbital. So butalbital is kind of shorter acting, three to six hours. Phenobarbital's half-life is way longer than that, 24 plus hours, even up to 72 hours. So you can use either a loading dose protocol, 
which can be very, very effective, especially if you're worried about seizures, which you should be. Or you could kind of figure out an equivalency, which is kind of what we do for alcohol withdrawal or benzodiazepine withdrawal, figure out what your equivalency is and your tolerance of your patient's butalbital use and then dose them accordingly with the phenobarbital and taper them down off of the phenobarbital over several days, monitoring for an appropriate response and pulling back the dose of phenobarbital if they become over-sedated um, or ataxic. So, you know, one of two ways you can do that. So either give them a loading dose. There, there are dosing protocols that are as high as 10 mg per kg. That's quite, that's a lot of phenobarb. I would not ever do that unless you have an addiction medicine or addiction psychiatry consult and also talk to your pharmacy team. Um, but that people actually do tolerate that. Or you can just do kind of a semi-loading dose, like five mgs per kg, observe them. This is the inpatient setting. And then they may not need any further dosing. Or you can do a moderate uh, taper where you use an equivalency of about 30 milligrams of phenobarbital to 100 milligrams of butalbital. And you can match their tolerance divide that by 50% and start there and dose them, you know, TID initially for two days and then, you know, BID for a couple of days, decreasing every day by 10 to 25% of the phenobarbital. And if you undershoot at the beginning, you run the risk of seizures and delirium, which may then be very difficult to get on top of. So this is the one situation, or not the one, but this is one of the withdrawal syndromes where you really want to be more aggressive in the beginning and dose them quite um, highly and obviously watch them because we just talked about the respiratory depression and suppression risk, uh, watch them for their response and then um, adjust their dose down accordingly. And then you can give other comfort medications if you need, but that would be the main approach would be phenobarbital. Key thing is your typical supportive cares that you would do with any withdrawal management monitoring and monitoring vital signs. and phenobarbital is considered your first line treatment. And I think that is pretty much it for butalbital. But this is one where we frequently encounter it. And we have patients who are on, I, I'm just surprised I still encounter this daily dosing of this you can attempt tapers in the outpatient setting if it's tolerated, but yeah, we strongly advise if that fails an outpatient taper, then admit this is definitely something that would warrant an inpatient management and admission and to be I agree. removed. I agree with that. Yeah, either close management in the outpatient setting with a specialist or refer them for admission. I totally yeah. agree with you on that. Very tricky. Okay, promethazine. All right, so promethazine, we all know this medication really well. It's Phenergan. It's used broadly. It's a first-generation antihistamine and actually antipsychotic. <clears throat> we use it as an anti-emetic, so anti-nausea medication all the time, right? If you go to the emergency room, you're given promethazine. If you go, if you're an inpatient, it's not uncommon for promethazine to be written as a standing order. And um, it is sometimes used for sedating people who are agitated or anxious, although I haven't really seen that to be true recently. 
or in my career, even working at a psychiatric hospital. However, at the psychiatric hospital I worked in, promethazine was on all the standing orders. And patients on my unit, because I worked with folks who had substance use disorders, loved the promethazine. And unfortunately, it does have a risk for recreational use and uh, tolerance and abuse. Um, we There's kind of two different ways in which promethazine is classically known to be problematic for people, for some people. And now, again, remember, not everybody is going to have a problem with promethazine. Some people take it and it's just used for the indication and there's no issue, just like other just like op some opioids and other things. But for some people who are vulnerable, promethazine can be a big problem. We'll talk about who that might be. Um, but we're talking about promethazine products by themselves. So just straight promethazine can be rewarding for people and people who have a history of sedative hypnotic use disorder and especially opioid use disorder are quite vulnerable to the effects of promethazine use uh, disorder. It's not a real use disorder in the DSM-5, but we'll call it promethazine misuse or abuse. Um, and then promethazine with codeine. So we're familiar with promethazine, codeine cough syrup is basically Phanogen with codeine. And, you know, I used to do urgent care back in the day, Darlene, you did too. And boy, this stuff was given out like it was just candy and yeah. people loved it. And it's no doubt because you have the codeine in it. And then, of course, you have promethazine and promethazine is very sedating. So for so for those vulnerable brains who are really looking for that dulling, numbing, sedating effect, promethazine can really be the ticket. It has a long half-life and uh, comes from a chemical class of phenothiazines, which I think we've talked about phenothiazines before on the podcast. In high doses, it causes delirium, which I think is interesting. So when people take enough promethazine, they can get really gorked out. And I had a patient who really, she was wonderful and worked really hard on her goals of abstinence from opioids and sedative hypnotics. She had a uh, benzodiazepine use disorder and she worked in the outpatient setting and then she actually went to residential treatment for a while and came back to me in my clinic and was doing really well and then I noticed like she was coming to clinic looking really impaired and just just not with it looked sedated but it wasn't like the same kind of sedation as as like an alprazolam intoxication and didn't wasn't alcohol and she didn't have a classic toxidrome for opioids like with constricted pupils or anything like that and you know she didn't admit to using anything and we did do regular routine urine drug screens in my clinic and nothing would show up after a couple of visits she admitted or she told me that she was taking a lot of promethazine and she said it had a very similar effect you know to to like a lot of it not just a little bit had kind of a very delirious like delirium almost like a dissociative effect for her so it can be abused um we'll talk in a minute about purple drank or lean that's kind of a whole that's a third way it's commonly <clears throat> abused actually so we'll talk about that um there's a couple of studies looking at what the data is surrounding the abuse of promethazine. There is a uh, article published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology in 2021 in June. The main author is Chiapini, 
at all. And they looked at the European Monitoring Agency to see what the promethazine-specific data set was for misuse, abuse, and dependence-related adverse drug reactions. And they analyzed any of the data that showed that they were poisoning reports with promethazine in there. And they showed increasing levels of abuse and misuse and dependence of promethazine over time from a period of 2003 to 2019. And they looked at about 1,543 cases, actually, um, of adverse drug reactions. So that's just anyone who related like a poisoning event with promethazine. And they found that out of those 1,500 cases, approximately 557 were actually reported as an abuse or misuse case. And um they had intentional product misuse and drug abuse kind of as different categories. So they also unfortunately recorded a high number of fatalities um, with promethazine associated with opioids. Actually, they said 55.6% were recorded as drug toxicity, drug abuse cases with opioids having been the most commonly reported concomitant drug use used with a promethazine. So that's that's pretty scary, right? That out of that number of um, of drug related cases that were reported, five hundred fifty seven, three hundred ten of them, fifty five percent were fatal over overdoses with opioids and promethazine were in their system. So that's pretty interesting. Now, if we go to the U.S., there's a very similar um, study or a publication that was published in the Journal of Addiction Medicine in 2015 in the May to June um, edition. And uh, this was uh, called Abuse and Intentional Misuse of Promethazine Reported to U.S. Poison Centers, 2002 to 2012. And what these authors did is look at an 11-year retrospective review of promethazine abuse and intentional misuse without co-ingestance in people over the age of 10 in the United States. And they recorded a much lower number. Well, they recorded 354 as opposed to 557 in Europe. Um, but it was over a shorter period of time. And they said that the exposures were most prevalent in people aged 10 to 19 and young adults, which makes a lot of sense, actually, especially when we look into um, the consumption of lean or purple drank, which we'll talk about in a minute. And they looked at both promethazine alone um, incidents and promethazine with codeine incidents, incidences. And actually the promethazine alone incidences were more prevalent than the promethazine codeine, which is interesting to me. I would have thought the opposite was true, but there were 69.5% of the cases were promethazine alone. They recorded that people had what you'd expect if you overtook promethazine, drowsiness, agitation, confusion, slurred speech, tachycardia, hallucinations. So there's that delirium piece, dizziness, hypertension, which is interesting. Uh, and um, the most common ones with promethazine and codeine were drowsiness and tachycardia. But, you know, you've got the opioid in there to kind of mix things up. So, you know, we have um, we do have evidence that misuse potential of promethazine is quite high amongst people with opioid use disorder. So we talked about that originally, but we have a study and a paper that talks about this, again, published in the Journal of Addiction Medicine in 2016 by Dahlman, and it's called Non-Medical Use of Antihistaminergic Anxiolytics and Other Prescription Drugs Among Persons with Opioid Dependence. 
And they showed that there's a misuse potential amongst people with opioid dependence. This is back in the day when that term was still being used as at DSM-4 era, as well as chronic pain patients and the general population. So they identified three main categories of people. And they showed that 26% of patients in methadone maintenance treatment, so opioid treatment programs on methadone, tested positive for promethazine. That's insane. 26%. 15% of them had a prescription. So first of all, that's a lot of people who have prescriptions for promethazine. And secondly, that's a quarter of your methadone population in this study that tested positive for promethazine, right? And I'm actually, that doesn't surprise me personally, because I've worked in uh, the world of methadone for many, many years, and you have too. It's a very popular combination. And it's because promethazine potentiates the effect of opioids, and it prolongs the effect, okay? So we just have to be very careful if you have a patient who's taking methadone for their opioid use disorder, or if you're an OTP director. Well, weighing... and same, same goes for your buprenorphine patient. Yeah, it's true. Oh. You gotta weigh the risks and the benefits, right? Of Is this the only anti-emetic that works for them? And do you only wanna give it to them for a short period of time, knowing that people can develop um, a use disorder if they're vulnerable to it. I, I think that's such a good point is you frequently will encounter these patients that come in and they're just like, yeah, I just, I need my 30 or my 60 promethazine. And you always need to ask yes. well, why, what are we treating? Because this, this daily, this daily nausea, well, is this like, opiate-induced constipation, for instance, for a patient in a methadone OTP that we're, we need to treat. So I'm I'm very much about let's treat the root problem rather than getting them and setting them up for a misuse problem with promethazine. I'm kind of going off the tangent on a tangent here. No, I don't but, think that's tangential. But that's the problem where you're we're talking about is why are these people being prescribed this? And then we're seeing it now with all these GLP-1s. That's 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 the advice that's being given. We'll just give everyone, you know, anti-nausea medicine while you're ramping up. But at some point we have to say, okay, if you're taking a medication that you have to stay on an anti-nausea medication with, then we need to start addressing the real issue. Like, is there, is it a GI issue? Is this a food intolerance? Is there, you know, is this again, constipation that we frequently see in this population, or is this actually a misuse disorder that we're not addressing? Yeah, and, I used to sort. Yeah, and, absolutely. And stop, and stop prescribing, really, because yeah. these these medications were not designed to be daily used. But that's what we're seeing. Yeah, and I've seen that exact same thing where people are requesting multiple, you know, just monthly prescription refills yeah. for promethazine QID or something like that. Yeah. And, and then they're pretty tolerant to it, really. Yeah. And it does have its risks. We already talked about its risks. Okay. Delirium, sedation, tachycardia. It also can cause, it can prolong cardiac repolarization yeah. and increase the risk of arrhythmia in the heart. So that's really important, especially. That's by itself, even. Yeah, and that's then just when we itself. add it with other medications. Right. Particularly our right. vulnerable population. Yeah. Right. So remember that overdose of promethazine can look like delirium. It can also look like neuroleptic malignant syndrome because, again, it's an anti-psychotic, um, you know, first generation anti-psychotic. So you've got to be really careful prescribing promethazine. And, you know, some people may disagree with this, but when I was working, um, 
doing inpatient management of withdrawal and working with the substance patients who really had trouble with substance use disorder, I didn't, I rarely, if ever prescribed promethazine. I removed it from all the standing orders in my order sets and I never prescribed it. I mean, never is hard word, but I used Zofran or I used <clears throat> other things, you know, if I needed to for nausea. So I'd be very cautious around it. The other thing that we need to know about it is, you know, pop culture um, and the, the Department of Justice released a drug watch all the way back in 2011. And I haven't heard about it too much lately, but um, it became really popular to create this drink called Lean, L-E-E-N, or it was called Purple Drank, <laughs> kind of like, yeah. And what it was a combination of cough syrup, so promethazine and codeine cough syrup added to Sprite with, uh, what was the candy? What's that hard candy that's, you know what what I'm talking about? I can't believe it's on the tip of my tongue. Like Jolly Ranchers. Jolly Ranchers. That's it. Yes. Yeah. It's classically with Jolly Ranchers. And so it's basically like a punch. And um, the, it's not necessarily purple. It depends on what color jo Jolly Rancher you put in. And also promethazine codeine syrup is often colored. It's often pink or purple. But this is a potent mixture and it um, can be really very, very dangerous because it has can have high doses of codeine in it. And it can have promethazine and it's just an intoxicant. It goes, goes by the word lean, as I said, or syrup or Texas tea or purple tonic. And uh, so we have to be careful of it. You might hear about some of your, especially adolescents, 10 to 19 year olds getting hold of this. I think that now this is anecdotal, but I think the incidence of use of the making of lean and purple drink has gone down because Generally, promethazine coating cough syrup is harder to get than it used to be. I think it should be like it, as, as opposed to how it was in the early 2000s where everyone was prescribing coating cough syrup with no, with not a lot of. The American Academy of, of Pediatrics came out and has heavily gone against that you should not be prescribing coating cough syrup to any children under the age of 18. Like, there's no reason at all. And so I, I think you do have some prescribers that have taken heed to that. And so you've seen some decrease. But as you can see from this, like these warnings is this is why you don't even want to expose that vulnerable brain to opiates, if at all, you know, at all possible, especially in cough syrup form. And I've had a lot of like, you know, we still... We still run urgent cares and see in family medicine, you're still seeing patients and having those discussion with parents when you're treating those teenagers and they're they're They want you to prescribe them a cough syrup and you're trying to explain to them why it's not appropriate. But I think you need to have those tough conversations that, yeah, we there's there's two ingredients in that cough syrup that I don't want your kid to have <laughs> for good reason. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I think the, the bottom line is just be cautious. Know that promethazine is not without its risks innately. It has a risk of cardiac arrhythmia, delirium, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, and it can be very rewarding for certain people. So be careful and be guardians and advocates for people that you take care of. Don't put them in harm's way. And if you see people who are requesting refill after refill after refill of promethazine, ask them more questions. Find out. Walk alongside them and find out what's going on with this. How does it make you feel? How are you using it? Are you taking it with something else? 
and then come up with a plan um, to get them off of it and get them switched to something else. So that's for that's it for promethazine. Hey, sounds great. So in summary, butalbital, it this is a this binds to GABA A. It binds to a different site on the receptor than benzodiazepines. This has high risk of respiratory depression. You absolutely want to avoid daily use. This should be something as not considered first-line treatment for headache management. And so be very careful about misuse and dependence. Our patients with history of of any type of addiction history in their past or patients who have a lot of emotional dysregulation or what we would known as access one or access two diagnoses are high risk. So be very careful about who you would prescribe this to. And then promethazine be beads. And so cautious on who we prescribe that to. This is a first generation antihistamine and antipsychotic medication. And it can have some very serious side effects and we want to be careful about not exposing a very vulnerable our youth to this medication either in the just promethazine by itself or in the combination promethazine and opiate um the promethazine and codeine so not exposing them to either of those combinations i think that's a wrap thank you very much paula thank you until next time Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.